0: And welcome to the latest episode of Jacobin Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila. I am joined today by the lovely and brilliant and talented Jen Pan in the chair. Jen, how are you?
1: Nando, uh, doing good. It's always very fun to be on weekends. Uh, I think that we have a super good show today. Uh, We'll get into that in a minute, but I, I feel like first I have to just shout out Uh, Our friend and The Usual Weekends co-host, Anna Kasparian, if you guys don't know this yet, she debated Ben Shapiro at the Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce last week, which is why she has been absent from, you know, the Jacobin Weekends show. And like, I mean, obviously we're biased, but she killed it.
0: Yeah. Well, and talk about like walking into enemy territory, debating Ben Shapiro at the Chamber of Commerce. Like literally she was one woman standing in a room of, Thousands of people who fucking hate her, you know. <laughs> I, I don't have that kind. I don't have that kind of brass, you know, to just like walk into a room like that and just be like, no, this is what this is what I believe, and this is why you go- all of you are wrong. And uh, and yeah, no, it's a. I was very proud of her and and very impressed. Like again, I don't know, I don't know, Jen. Would you would you leave, like do one of those debates or and, and something like that? It just oh, seems oh, like a absolutely, very absolutely not,
1: absolutely not, yeah. Anna. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I. I feel like it's like already, you know, uh, an effort to talk to YouTube to other socialists. So I definitely cannot (laughs) imagine being Anna Kasparian and going to the Chamber of Commerce to debate Ben Shapiro. I mean, I I haven't watched the whole debate yet, but it is available online. So you guys should check it out. She did great, um, you know, so far as I can see. I'm sure she did great through throughout the entire thing. And she was definitely the David to the Goliath of the Chamber of Commerce. So yeah. Yeah,
0: and I think and I think that that's important, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that you know Ben Burgess has been arguing forever. You know, he wrote a whole book called "Give Them an Argument," right? Where it's like, uh, you know, there was this kind of thing on the left for a while. Well, there was that really toxic thing, which was like, it's not my job to educate you or whatever. Which is like, no, it is your job. I'm sorry, but uh, um, and uh, and then there was just this weird thing where it was like, no, we cannot talk to these people. We can, mm-hmm. we can never mm-hmm. talk to them, and it just projects a image of weakness. It projects an image of uh, a lack of confidence in your own arguments. Um, You know, you should be able to defend your positions and your principles uh, with clarity and confidence and then you know, people might be able to get on your side. It's just like I'm not just saying I want to do that, though.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Anna can do that. No, I, Anna I can do I, it. I, I totally agree. Um, it's important to debate conservatives in a public setting. Um, it's also really important, I think, to pay attention to what conservatives are saying. Um, you know, so we can actually debunk those arguments. Uh, and and I feel yeah. like that. You know, going off what you just said and and what Ben Burgess has been arguing for a while, like that's another component of kind of this, like, oh, we shouldn't debate them. Uh, Like, you know, I think the idea is like, oh, we don't want to be like, there are both sides, or like, there are two sides, we don't want to like, platform these people. Um, But I actually think that everybody should be reading conservative and or right wing media in order to better debunk those ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, like, I mean, the idea of Platforming Ben Shapiro is obviously in, on its face ridiculous. He's like literally in, like eight of the top ten on Facebook uh, shares every single day. Um, it's he does it's good. Wild. He does good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I mean, people like speculate as to whether like it, there's like a little gaming of the system on behalf of his friend uh, mark zuckerberg mm-hmm. which wouldn't be that surprising but even if it even if he is gaming the system like the fact is that he is platformed uh much bigger than than jacobin weekends is for example um <laughs> and, uh, and much as and we again, hate to admit it much as we hate to admit it and I, I i i honestly have encountered ben shapiro fans in the wild like the guy who cuts my hair he's like hey you do like politics is hey man you ever listen to ben shapiro like you know i don't agree with everything he says but like you know you you know i listen to him and he makes some good points or whatever and i'm like yeah you know like yeah you know i don't like i'm not like you fucking you fucking fascist or whatever but like um, you know i i encounter ben shapiro fans in the wild so i think it's Mm -hmm. important to to provide a counterweight
1: I, I do want to say Kale has told me that he has encountered some Jacobin Show fans in the wild or Jacobin Weekends and Jacobin, Jacobin Show fans in the wild. I don't really believe him, but. <laughs> yeah, it's because
0: he hangs around the Verso loft every. every yeah, weekend. exactly. It's like, you know, it's because he's a, he's a New York boy. He's just like, yeah. you know, uh, drinking IPAs with all the other Brooklyn socialists. You know, you and I, we're That's in right. the we're in the Southwest. You know, we're in we're not in in, in the hub of. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of media platforms, something that <laughs> I am very excited to talk to you about. Uh, it's, it's Friday. I, I want to have a good time. Uh, you know, yesterday when we were texting, it, it turns out that we're both obsessed with the story of Aussie media. Uh, yeah. if, if you guys haven't yet heard about Aussie, it's it's kind of a weird thing because it turned into a huge media scandal. Uh, but I think The Verge had one of the best headlines. Uh, they wrote something like, med- Aussie media shuts down just one week after most of us found out it exists. It's true. Uh, I had never heard about Aussie until it unraveled. And, you know, I actually I, I feel like there are some like bigger implications for the left and, you know, for um, or I mean, I guess maybe not for the left, but just. It, it says something about capitalism and the media, yeah. right? Uh, but but Nando, what's going on with Aussie?
0: Well, I, I have to say I had heard of Aussie Media because mm. I I used to work for the lamestream media, um, and if you worked in the lamestream media, uh, Aussie was kind of an uh, a topic of conversation that was relatively common to hear i'd also heard of aussie media because i've been to aussie fest because one of the mainstream media outlets that i worked for uh like did it like had to did some sort of partnership with aussie fest to cover it or something and i and i was sent and i had also heard of aussie media because carlos watson the head of aussie media went to my high school in miami oh he's,
1: shit wow, yeah he's whisk. a ransom
0: raider yeah. yeah um so <laughs> So I definitely he spoke at my sister's commencement uh, at high school uh, in high school. Uh, so, yeah, what I had high very school? much
1: They're They're pumping out all these media moguls. I mean, you yes. obviously, first and foremost, and yeah. second in line, Carlos Watson. My God. I, I, I,
0: well, they do call me the Carlos Watson of the left. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, we both have like Latinx names, but we're not technically Latinx. So oh that's God. great.
1: You both, yeah. you both have $70 million in venture capital funding, obviously. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> uh, worked for Goldman Sachs and uh, went to Harvard and Stanford. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Uh, so, yeah, I had heard of Aussie media, but everyone, most other people like you heard of Aussie media for the first time after Ben Smith wrote a column in The New York Times in which he essentially destroyed them. But we have a clip of Ben Smith uh, talking about Aussie media uh, on TV. Kale, why don't you throw that up?
1: Ben,
2: you had the inside scoop on it. Walk us through how they fell apart.
3: Um, well, you know, the thing about Ozzy, which, you know, many, many people inside media kind of knew was that they would make these big claims, but um, about about having an audience, but you would never run across anybody who had ever really, who liked Ozzy, who read Ozzy. Um, which was always a bit of kind of an enduring media mystery, but, you know, it's not like Tylenol, which poisoned seven people with cyanide in 1982, right? Like it's... Yeah, you know, maybe some advertisers are getting ripped off, but that's really their problem. And so I think it kind of was a thing that a lot of us were sort of vaguely aware of. And, and then I found out about this call, this call where they impersonated a YouTube executive, which really takes it from being puffery to being potential securities fraud and reported on that. In the wake of that, a lot of other really overt lying came out. They had, in particular, hired a production crew to produce a show which they said was for A&E. They told all the guests it was for A&E. It turned out to be a video that they were uploading to YouTube. Um, They continued to tell an advertiser, for instance, that it was, in fact, airing on Hulu, which was not true, told people it had been sold to YouTube, which was not true. And they were basically charging these huge premium television rates to advertisers, for video that was just being uploaded to youtube like you or i could film a video on our phone and upload it to youtube
1: in fact we do
0: <laughs> yes we do uh this show will not, this show will not appear on a and e just uh i have to be uh, forthright about that but yeah ozzy's been around since 2013 um, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, it's almost you know, almost a decade of posts at Ozzy that you've never read. Um, and the, the the crazy thing is, like, those of us who worked in media, like, whenever we would do, uh, you know, a marketing presentation about our numbers or whatever, it was always, like, you'd, you'd do research online as to, like, okay, how many how many numbers are, like, Gawker Media getting or BuzzFeed or uh, Vox or whatever. Then you'd come across Ozzy and they'd be like, yeah, we have, like, 500 trillion uniquely visitors a month. And we're like what what, the, what the, this is like ridiculous like it, it's very obviously ridiculous like there's no one who reads this shit like there's and it's and it's and it was like an open secret in media but then when ben smith um had the had the scoop that uh they were uh, impersonating a youtube call in order to defraud uh goldman sachs from investment that that was just uh that was just a bridge too far and it it's one of my favorite stories
1: it's uh it's 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 such a great story. I feel like we haven't had a legitimate scam uh, to obsess over in a while. I mean a few years ago obviously we work uh fire festival um, but you know I and, and obviously, the I, I think the um, the true feel good story is when normal people are able to rip off rich people. But barring yeah. that, rich people ripping off other rich people um, is a pretty good time too. That's obviously what happened with Ozzy. Uh This this you know media figurehead Carlos Watson was just able to pull a fast one on like huge investors. Uh, like I like I mentioned before, he got like he was able to get like seventy million dollars in total in yeah. funding from various venture capitalists. He got $2 million from the Ford Foundation. And, you know, of special interest to me in this whole saga is the fact that there's kind of like a social justice twist, right? Like yeah. the Ford Foundation invested in him because the Ford Foundation president, Darren Walker, said something along the lines of, you know, I think it's really important to um, invest in in Black-owned media. It's, it's important, yeah. you know, especially post-racial reckoning to kind of put our money where, you know our mouth is and support uh, black media figures
0: yeah i mean and it's 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 interesting because what you're mentioning is is it, there's three things that i that i foresee going on with this with the, the fact that carlos watson was able to raise so much money um the first thing and it's it's a lesson that is it's hard for regular people to like us regular people to absorb and really because it, it takes so much chutzpah but it's easier to raise 70 million dollars than seventy thousand dollars mm. if in, in you know like or or a hundred thousand dollars like it's easier to raise $100 million, mm-hmm. like a hundred million dollars like like a lot of money than than like a lit like a like a lot of money but comparatively small amount mm-hmm. you know and um, that's that's like a weird kind of thing that exists. Like you, when you go out there and you're raising money for your business, um, if you ask for like $50 million, like you're more likely to get it than if you ask, like, no, we have this little plan. We're going to raise $500,000 and then we'll go from there. You know, like that, that, that doesn't work. These days they want, you know, big investment, all or nothing. The other thing is that, um, is that people invest in this kind of thing only because other people have invested in it. Mm-hmm. So the key for Carlos Watson is that he he was friends with Lorene Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow. And he convinced her to put some money in, and then he used that, and he's like, "Oh, look, Lorraine Powell Jobs is investing," uh, mm-hmm. and then someone else was like, "Oh shit, oh, I have to invest." Right? And they don't even look at the, they don't even look under the hood. They don't even care. Mm-hmm. It's, it's comparatively a small amount of money for them, um, and all they really are buying is uh, the ability to say that they're in the same thing with Lorraine Powell Jobs. Yep. So that's the other thing that that is going on, and then the third thing is what you're talking about, the social justice thing, in which Carlos Watson was. Not explicitly, but implicitly saying, like, listen, guys, I know you guys all have to do the diversity thing. Diversity, there's pressure to do the diversity thing. I'm the safe guy. Like, just, you know, like, I'm the guy who's not going to, like, say something that's going to, like, get you in trouble. I'm not going to do anything that's going to, you know, I'm not going to have, like, some rapper on who's going to, (laughs) like, you know, say something bad or whatever. Like, I'm the safe guy. Give me the money. You can put it on your presentation that we've invested in black businesses, that we're supporting diversity, and blah 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 blah. It's not a lot of money for you, you know. For us, it's a, it's a good chunk of change. Mm-hmm. For you, billionaire, you know, hundred million or whatever, like it's 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 nothing, and it lets you check that little box. And that's what Carlos Watson was selling to these people, mm-hmm. um, and they happily bought it. I mean, I don't think they, I don't think outside of a certain, a smaller group of investors that are like now suing or whatever. I think that the big ones. They don't even they don't even care. Like mm-hmm. it's not even they don't right. even care that the audience was fake.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it you saw exactly the same thing with WeWork and again with Theranos. I mean, you know, these these huge investors lost a ton of money, but in the grand scheme of how much money they had to begin with, it's kind of like, oh, like a regrettable night at the casino or something, you know?
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. It Got a little crazy yeah, at the got, blackjack table. a little table. crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, um so,
1: so I I, I do want to say though that with Aussie, um the the latest twist is that after this scandal came to light, uh, you know, the all the staff was fired, um, and actually, we should we should talk about the staff and the workers in a second. Um, all the staff was fired. You know, Carlos Watson announced that the company was shutting down. Uh, mere what days, maybe even hours after announcing the company was shutting down, he goes on the Today Show and says, "Actually, no, we are going to revive." <laughs> I think we have a clip of that,
4: right? We do. Let's join us let's yeah. now exclusively. Carlos Watson, Ozzy Media's CEO. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, thanks for coming in. Let's let's start with the status of Ozzy as we sit right now. Reports that the company shut down on Friday. Is that true? Is, is the company shut down or are you still open for business? You know, we're going to open for business. So uh, we're making news today. Uh, this is our Lazarus moment, if you will. This is our Tylenol moment. Um, last week was traumatic. It was difficult. Um, heartbreaking in many ways. And at the end of the week, we did suspend operations with a plan to wind down. But as we spent time over the weekend, we talked to advertising partners, we talked to some of our readers, some of our viewers, our listeners, our investors. I think Ozzy is part of this moment. And it's not going to be easy. Um, but I think what we do with newsletters, what we do with TV shows, original TV shows, podcasts, and more, I think has a place.
0: I can't think of anything more psychopathic than to say this is our Tylenol moment, you know, like famously Tylenol, uh, like had cyanide in their pills and killed like seven children in the early 80s and then was able to like, you know, recover from that. And he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is our we're going to do that. You know, great.
1: It's
0: it's just incredible. Um, You know, yeah, yeah, he's 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 doing the equivalent of tweeting through it, you know, like he's (laughs) doing like the 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 fire Fest. Fuck it. Let's do it and be legends. You know, Mm -hmm, like he mm -hmm. can't just. If again, I'm sure that if Carlos Watson had just been like, okay, let's just like quietly go off into the night, you know, mm-hmm. he um he'd be able like a couple years from now, he'll pop back up on like some boards and you know, consulting business, blah blah blah. Like, you know, he's slick enough uh to to, to be able to recover from this. But mm-hmm. I think part of his problem, and it's a different thing that than um what the theron what Elizabeth Holmes had or whatever, is that he also has this like ambition to be a broadcaster, you know, like he needs to be like if you ever worked with uh, uh, television broadcasters, uh, a lot of them, it's like the money is like is nice. But what's important is just being on air, like being mm-hmm. on air is like air to them like literally like the air that they breathe and they need to be on it. And so he needs to be on it. So he can't shut down his media company because the media company was just an excuse for him to have a broadcasting career after he was like- literally have a show
1: called The Carlos Watson Show.
0: Yes. Which (laughs) by the way, he profiled- (laughs) Which he profiled Ben Smith as like a media uh, mover and shaker (laughs) like a few years ago on the Carlos Watson show, which is amazing. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I mean, so that's the funny thing about the Carlos Watson show. Um, As you mentioned, he had kind of pitched it to producers and investors as something that was going to air on A&E. It turns out it aired on the prestigious channel of youtube.com uh and and you know because we're youtube propagandists uh when i read about this i was like i'm gonna go to carlos watson's youtube page because i want to see what's going on like it's incredible. I it might not still be up, um, it, or maybe it is. If you guys should check out the Carlos Watson YouTube page if you haven't yet, it rules. Oh, here, Kale, Kale's <laughs> thirty-one it up.
0: views. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, oh my yeah. god. Okay,
1: so this is the incredible thing. So there was an article in the New York Times. I'm not sure if it was Ben Smith or somebody else. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I think it was Ben Smith. He basically dug into Carlos Watson or you know Aussie's YouTube numbers, found that there were a few videos that had like. Mil- a million views or like hundreds of thousands of views, but was like, this is weird because these videos, you know, don't have an appropriate number of comments or engagement for the number of yeah. views, which leads me to think that they bought the views. Now, if you look at the rest of the videos, the views are like 30 views, 200 views. Like I don't even know how they did this badly because the shows are really slickly produced. They yeah. literally How have do you get 200 and...
0: How do you get 230 views on a video that says is male circumcision child abuse you know like that... you think just a lot you know
1: <laughs> but nando <laughs> it it even goes beyond the spicy topic there are some videos where it's literally an interview with Sean Penn and it has 200 views like yeah. i don't it's 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 a it's it's a it's a marvel honestly.
0: It's incredible. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, about this and he was telling, he went to like a very prestigious business school. Uh, and he was telling me that as part of his, you know, as part of their business school thing, they had to like, pro- like start a company essentially, or like make a proposal for a company or whatever. And that one of his friends in school pitched, uh, developed this like, uh, idea for a company that, uh, essentially would make advertising, uh, more precise, and, and the metrics in terms of like uh, ROI on, on, on your advertising more precise, because like famously advertising, you don't really know if like mm-hmm. all the millions of dollars you're spending on those like state farm ads are actually like, you know, delivering more business. And he was like coming up with a method to uh, figure that out. And he started pitching it to people in the advertising world. They're like, are you insane? Like what do you like? We're our whole job rests on the fact that no one knows. Right. Like we go to the parties, we do that. Like the, the Carlos Watson, the Aussie thing. It, it, it like you said, it was like it's it's a scam. But like uh, on the other on the other hand, the other the other side of it, they wanted to be scammed. Like the advertisers, right. they don't care if right. the if the actual thing actually gives them they're they're like middle managers existing in this ecosystem and they want to go to the parties and they want to go to the upfronts and they want to mm-hmm. and they want to be hobnob and then they do these massive ad buys and they what they, they the last thing they want is accountability for that for that investment you know right. <laughs> they want to they just keep saying like no no, no it's yeah look uh, uh we got matthew mcconaughey on the mm-hmm. lincoln uh, commercials that's great and like mm-hmm. do we know if that like was a good thing or not like no 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 we don't want to know um right. it's great
1: yeah. 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 I mean, I think that 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 is the kind of like hilarious or sort of like, you know, feel feel good part of the story. Or I, I mean, it's both feel good and feel bad because the feel good part is that, like I said, it's rich people ripping off other rich people. The feel bad part is that, you know. Every, all of the rich people in this story will escape unscathed. Like you said, oh, the yeah. advertisers don't care that they lost money. The investors don't care that they lost money. Carlos Watson, you know, might have, a, might have taken a reputational hit, but he's still fucking rich. And, you know, he probably will continue. He'll probably get some sinecure, like, at some, you know, other media institution if Ozzy ends up folding. But, I, I, you know, I do think that it is important to say, you know, much like we work, the people who actually got screwed over are the people who work for this company. Yeah. Um, and I want to quickly read a quote from New York magazine. They did an expose or, you know, they did a report on what some of the editors and writers for Aussie were actually going through while Carlos Watson was like wheeling and dealing. Um, and so this is this is a quote from the article. Um, they write: Editors were expected to turn out eight or nine pieces a week and have their stories polished and filed two weeks in advance. But it wasn't <laughs> enough to simply get one's work done. Ozzy wanted its employees to work long hours. Crane, who's one of the editors, says that she would routinely start working at 7.30 a.m. and go until 1 a.m. on weekdays with only a slightly lighter schedule on weekends and holidays. I would get shouted and screamed at if I didn't work all day Saturday, says Crane. They would email people on Christmas Eve just to see if you were checking your email. No one was ever committed enough and driven enough. Um, And like for what? For what? Yeah. For what? For, exactly, for like you know, 200 like, views.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. you know, on some level, like, you know, if you're if you're if you're being exploited that much, but you're like, you know, publishing at The New York Times or something. And you know that like whatever bullshit little article that you're writing is being read by millions of people. At least there's like at least there's that satisfaction mm-hmm. for Ozzy. You're being ground to dust for nothing mm-hmm. for this like right. fake thing, um, right. which is the craziest thing. thing.
1: Right. And then, you well, know, at, and then once the scandal breaks, all of these employees immediately laid off. I don't I don't even know right. if they got severance or, you know, any anything other than like an email or anything other than their emails yeah. being turned off, basically.
0: No. And, they, and they, uh, the other thing that came out is that Ozzy took five point seven million dollars in PPP loans and didn't give any of it to the employees, oh, oh uh, you know, oh, my which my is God. a yeah. this whole other thing. But, Jen, the real victim here, I mean, the workers, yes, the real victim here is Sharon Osbourne. Wife of Ozzy Osbourne. And this is the maybe the funniest part of the whole story because please check out this clip and watch how Carlos Watson just throws Sharon Osbourne under the bus.
4: What about this this Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne? Uh, At one point, I mean, that's but but you said that they were investors. Sharon Osbourne last week on CNBC said she's never met Carlos Watson. So what's true there? Um, So it's true that she hasn't met me. um, And it's true that. Um, as a result of her suing us, so she sued us over the name Ozzyfest, which uh-huh. is our music and ideas festival. She had OzFest. The agreement was that we were gonna give her shares in the company. And the way I think about it, I think the way a lot of people think about it, if you own shares in a company, you're an investor. Now, she may not have liked that word, and let's be really clear. I'm not gonna raise money by telling sophisticated people that Sharon Osborne's mm-hmm. an investor. No smart investor is gonna talk- say, oh great, you got Sharon Osbourne. So I think I said that clearly in the cases there. Whoa.
1: Harsh. I I just want to say Sharon Osborne could still convince me.
0: Yeah, I I, I trust Sharon Osborne more than I trust Carlos fucking Watson, you know. <laughs> are you kidding me? Like all these smart sophisticated investors who invested in Ozzy? are you kidding me? Like uh is Everything Aussie, about the story is as just in Osborne
1: will remain the true Aussie to all of us. I think. Yes. Um, oh, yes. by the way, I just want to quickly mention. So you, you had mentioned Aussie fest, uh, you know, which, which you said you went to, right? I went. Oh, green,
0: Ro- green room with Grover Norston. he was telling me about uh, um, his trip to Burning Man and how much he loved it. Cause it was like a liber- libertarian kind of fantasy land or something. And I was like, Oh, cool, man. <laughs>
1: I was uh, I was still living in New York when Aussie Fest, uh, you know, was about to do like a big thing in Central Park. And I was like, what the fuck is it? Like they had they had, again, advertising like they had, I think, like painted murals, like just like all the most like groundbreaking like visual advertising that you could even think of just plastered all over my neighborhood. And I remember at the time, like again, I didn't know what Ozzy was, but I was like, this is the most bizarre shit I've ever seen. It it's like a festival that has like imagined dragons and like Henry Kissinger. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, like <laughs> Carlos Watson interviewed Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Uh, I remember and it was like and yeah, it was all about like Ozzy was all about like, hey, what if we put a panel with like Henry Kissinger and uh Hillary Clinton and they can like hash out their differences if there were any differences? But like um yeah, like it's all about like yeah, Grover Norquist and mm-hmm. uh uh you know, Chuck Schumer or whatever, mm-hmm. like let's sit them down and like just see if they can like hash it out or whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, this is yeah. this is- is hilarious. But they, but they did get like I mean like how did fucking Hillary Clinton this was like this is like pre 2016. So this was like uh, I think she was running for president or whatever and she she went and 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 sat down at this event and was like and I'm like how no one is doing any due diligence on any of this shit. Like if, right. it's just uh um it just shows like how much of the economy is like the emperor has no clothes.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um I I I do want to make one last, you know, broader point about I guess, kind of the media, uh, y- you know, I think that you're right that, like, the reason why investors kind of glommed onto Aussie, especially the ones who wanted to check that diversity or social justice box, uh, the-, the reason why they did that is because, you know, it was pretty non-confrontational, like Carlos Watson, you know, comes yeah. from the business world. I think that that is true. Um, And I saw an article in, I think, like the New York Times opinion page that talked about some of those factors. And this was written by somebody who um, I think was or is trying to start like a black led media venture, uh, which, you know, ostensibly is going to be a little more political, a little more controversial than (laughs) Carlos Watson's Aussie. And, you know, she made a similar point that like, the reason why, you know, These businesses, uh, these businesses chose Aussies because it's safe. And she was saying, like, and you know, I'm having trouble getting funding because my content is more political. Now, I think that that is, you know, totally true. Or. I think that's probably indisputable. Um, but I think that that raises the larger question not just of what advertisers and investors are willing to fund, but like why the media has to rely on those sources of funding to begin yeah. with. And I just want to say, like, I am a big proponent of publicly funded media. We don't Me really too. have it in the Nando. <laughs> You're not a I, mean, I think guy? it's
0: no no but I, I no yeah but i i just i can't see i mean i think about i think about this all the time and like you know there's like the there's like some on like the kind of libertarian left that are like worried about that kind of shit it's like government right. run media or like you know glenn green like you know the like glenn Greenwaldish type of thing um but it's like i mean what other alternatives are there bro you know yeah. like i mean i guess you could do like the, the new thing is like reader supported uh media which like Substack and i support that all the shit but like it, it's, it's unclear right. to me that you could that you can do that at the scale necessary to do the kind of, uh, you know, journalism and uh, required to, to live in a basic uh, level democracy, you know, that, right. that a publicly funded media is the only and finding solutions to that should be something that we should be thinking about a lot to maintain its kind of independence from whomever's in power, but to also be publicly funded. I mean, it's a tricky thing, but I'm sure it can be done.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I want to, you know, I, I just want to say that, like, lots of other countries have made it happen. Of course, the UK's BBC is kind of like the, the example that we all know about. But I think that, you know, lots of the Nordic states, Japan, New Zealand, I think that they all have publicly funded media, which is actually not the same as state media. So again, like mm. you're right, like I think that lots of Americans are sort of afraid of this idea of state run media, probably for good reason. I mean, nobody wants like, you know, a, like steel radio installed in everybody's house that just blasts like state propaganda all day. I get it. But they're I mean, the way that other countries make it work is, you know, they fund the media using public funds, but they set up things like multi-year funding agreements or yeah. you know trusts or they have independent civilian oversight boards that make sure that those lines don't get crossed so like there's a way to do it and i yeah. you know i've always said the post thing...
0: office the postal service should run the should run the the public broadcaster i mean the postal service you trust the you, you trust that like when you send something in the mail like you know some uh you know trump or whatever is not going to read your shit Right. I mean, on some level. Right. They, they do maintain a certain level of independence and transparency and privacy and all that shit. Um, yeah. The postal service should just run a channel.
1: Uh, we talked about postal banking on this week's Jacobin show. Postal media. I'm into it.
0: Yeah, let's do it. and You just call it going postal. There you go. <laughs> um, well, uh, speaking of uh, media, Verso is our partners on this show. And uh, we don't have a Verso read for this month, but we do have a few titles that you can check out. Uh, One of them is called Who Owns the Wind? Climate Crisis and the Hope of Renewable Energy by David McDermott Hughes, which argues for transforming renewable power into a common resource. Naomi Klein says David Hughes is doing some of the most innovative thinking and writing about energy democracy in the world. Next book is The Spoils of War. Power, Profit, and the American War Machine by the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn. Based on years of wide-ranging research, Coburn lays bare the ugly reality of the largest military machine in history and Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire 20 Years After 9-11 by Deepa Kumar, a critically acclaimed analysis of anti-Muslim racism from the 16th to the 21st centuries with a new foreword by Nadine Naber i think that's how you pronounce it nadine nabber those look great those look great andrew coburn love it um okay uh how about we get started on our segments jen do you want me to go first
1: nando i think you should go first
0: i mean you know i i I know we should always let the lady go first but I'm, i'm happy to go first if that's okay take it away okay Well, um, if you're out there, you probably love your Netflix programs, your bingeable shows, your true crime documentaries. Maybe you're addicted to Squid Game like everyone else, or maybe you like to get a glass of wine and watch old Law & Order episodes. A large variety of high-quality entertainment is one of the pleasures that we do get to enjoy in these dark times. Well, now, the people who make that entertainment have voted to authorize their union to go on strike. And no, I'm not talking about the beautiful actors.
3: Well, we have some breaking news for you. Members of the union that represent tens of thousands of behind-the-scenes entertainment workers have voted an authorized strike. 90% of eligible Ayatse union voters cast ballots, with more than 98% in support of a strike authorization. Now, a strike could shut down much of the state's TV and film production. IATSE wants higher pay, larger contributions to health and pension plans, and more rest periods. The group representing studios and producers say it's committed to reaching an agreement that balances the needs of both parties.
0: That's right. The men and women who make your favorite TV shows, meaning the cameramen, gaffers, wardrobe coordinators, makeup artists and script coordinators, have voted to authorize a strike should they not be able to reach an agreement for a new contract with the studios. This would be the first time that the union that represents the people that work in what's called in the biz below the line would go on strike. And a Yahtzee strike would bring the entire entertainment business to its knees. Now, the last major strike in entertainment was the writers' strike of 2007, but that was just the writers. It didn't halt all of production. Studios have thousands of old scripts lying around that they could shoot. It just meant that movies that year were a little bit worse than they would have been otherwise. But if the 60,000 members of IATSE strike, there is no production. Period. And that means that the product that the studios need to feed our insatiable appetite for content would halt. It would bring the entire industry. a standstill which would be especially painful for the studios given that they are coming off a tough year due to the COVID 19 pandemic so now the workers have more leverage than they have almost ever before and it's because of that painful year that the studios have been working them to the bone the instagram account at ia stories has been gathering testimonies from workers about what life is like on set these days and some of them are pretty harrowing One of them says, in a way, I hesitate to share this story because it's so personal, but our first AC miscarried uh, miscarried on our last set in the middle of the day. She was back the next day. I couldn't stop looking in her direction the entire shoot, her stone face, her quiet and steady work ethic. I knew she was screaming inside. I hope you all scream for her strike. And here's another one a few days ago i was asked on a 12-hour shoot i was told the budget wasn't large enough for a rate but i needed experience as i'm new to the industry in good traffic the commute was 1.5 hours we wrapped at 4 a.m on the drive back i fell asleep while waiting at a traffic light i found a place to park and slept in my car for a few hours until i felt i could continue and this issue of falling asleep at the wheel is something you hear over and over again from my workers
1: my day is never not 12 hours.
5: Working 70 hours a week, trying to turn your body around at 4 a.m. On Saturday when you're watching the sunrise and then trying to pull into your driveway and just get home without falling asleep at the wheel and then turning around and then working at 6 a.m. on Monday, it is incredibly unsafe. And there isn't a person who I've worked with who hasn't said I've almost fallen asleep at the wheel.
1: I definitely had moments of drowsy driving late at night. That's pretty common amongst most people.
0: In 2014, a crew member named Gary Joke Tuck died in a car crash after falling asleep at the wheel coming home after working on the set of Longmire.
6: A crew member from the show Longmire was killed this weekend in a rollover crash while on his way home from the set. It happened about 4.30 a.m. Saturday near Stanley. The Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office says 48-year-old Gary Tuck of Moriarty was driving along State Road 41 when his truck left the road and rolled. Tuck was not wearing a seatbelt and was partially ejected. Investigators believe Tuck fell
0: asleep. And back in 1997, an assistant cameraman named Brent Hirschman died in a car crash coming home from a 19-hour day on the set of Pleasantville. That inspired the legendary cinematographer Haskell Wexler, winner of not one but two Academy Awards, to produce a documentary called Who Needs Sleep?
6: I discovered in the making of the film that even uh, we privileged film workers um, work excessive hours, our normal work days on film and on TV is even longer, 14, 16, 18 hours. And I began making the film when a assistant cameraman friend of mine, Brent Hirschman, died after a 19 hour day, crashed his car. And at that point, that crash, and the crew of Pleasantville uh, took a stand Uh, against these long hours, saying that he shouldn't have died. He was a very popular guy.
0: Now, here's a clip from that documentary, which is definitely worth checking out, where actors like Julia Roberts and Ed Benning and Daryl Hannah talk about the long hours on set.
6: Just watching the crew that they work from the moment they get to work
0: till the moment they leave work. I work in kind of little bursts. For me, if I see the crew getting worn out and tired and overworked, then
3: I won't, then I'll say, no, I have to have my 12 hours. Because if I have 12 hours, I know they have a fighting chance at a nap or something. The producer has to come to the adder and say, you know, we really, we're, we're, we only have this location for one more day. We. We had a problem with the camera, it broke, we lost two hours, can you come in a little early, or can you work a little longer? And they're required by law to ask us and to say, can you break that rule? When you compare what happens with the actors versus what happens with the rest of the crew, you get some sort of picture as to um, the imbalance there. The crew has to get there before the actors and they leave after the actors. So the crew is working even longer hours than the actors and the actors are supposedly protected and even we're exhausted. So, I mean, I've worked so many movies where I've actually worked 20 hour days and, and that's me as an actor. So you know that the crew is working even longer.
0: It's nice to see that. And it was also nice to see the actors of today chiming in with support of for Yahtzee. Uh, Seth Rogen tweeted out, our films and movies literally would not exist without our crews, and our crews deserve better. And then he followed up with, I meant film and TV. It's early. It's okay, Seth. And then Rob Backlehunny from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia tweeted out this video saying, thank Think what you will of Hollywood, but IATSE is the working class lifeblood of this industry. Please support hashtag IATSE solidarity, hashtag IATSE strike.
7: Here's how important IATSE is. Without IATSE, I don't have hair. <laughs> they just, IATSE paints the hair on. There is no hair without our workforce. Man, completely bald. <laughs> completely bald. It's bizarre. And 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 also here's our
0: yep and also
2: we're naked without that man right there, Ryan Wardrobe, (laughs) Abby Roll, Thea Samuels. Who
0: cares? Now Ayazi responded with this tweet saying, "You absolutely love to see it. Thank you for standing with us." And then a pic of the title card that says, "The gang stands with Ayazi in the style of it's always sunny." That's nice. Now, it's hard not to see this Ayatsi strike authorization vote as part of a larger wave of labor unrest as companies have been overworking people while they struggle to get out of the pandemic. On this show, we covered the Frito-Lay strike and the workers there cited the long hours and what they called suicide shifts.
4: We have to do something with the suicide shifts because to work 12 hours and be off eight and work 12 hours, you got time, travel time and everything. I said that's a safety risk.
7: Imagine being an employee in here that has not had a day off for five months. That is the reality of what you're seeing. That is the reality of why you're really seeing the picket over here.
0: And this was also the case with the Nabisco strike and their parent company, Mondelez.
6: Here's what's going on here locally, about 200 workers at the factory in North Portland walked off the job earlier this month. They're members of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union. They need to shorten that somehow, but I digress. They're they're upset about changes to their contract with the parent company, Mondelez International. Union leaders say the company has proposed working longer days, 12-hour shifts instead of 8, working without overtime money and mandatory weekend days without extra pay. The workers say they want to keep things the way they have them now, so they're going to strike until they get their way.
0: And just this week, the workers at America's Kellogg plants stopped making cereal and went on strike.
1: Production of Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Corn Flakes hangs in the balance tonight after workers at all of the Kellogg company's U.S. cereal plants walked off the job this week.
0: And when you hear their testimonies... They start, they start to sound very familiar.
1: We spoke with one of the strike leaders this morning.
6: Everybody in this plant makes incredible sacrifices that most people wouldn't understand. Uh, they work eight days a week, at least. And that's months on end without a scheduled day off. I mean, some, some people in the plant don't have a scheduled day off for the entire year. Um, so we're, we're not willing to accept that anymore.
0: Now, the pandemic may have triggered this new wave of labor militancy. Here's Alex Press writing in Jacobin, quote, while long hours aren't new, what is different is the outrage among workers in the industry. Workers across the country are gaining confidence, refusing to return to work or quitting existing jobs unless they receive higher pay and better benefits. A desire for shorter hours is central to this dynamic. During the pandemic, expanded unemployment insurance allowed people in a range of industries to enjoy free time for what it was for what was, for some, the first time in their adult lives. Many of those people have no interest in returning to a life defined by overwork. This dynamic is particularly noticeable in the film industry, which effectively shut down during the pandemic. For six months, the unions didn't work, and for six months, everyone developed hobbies. People got into hiking. They got closer with their kids. They've rekindled relationships with their spouses, says Gottlieb. With production restarting, the shift in attitudes to long hours is hard to miss. People are miserable on set, and now... And, and on set now, and you can tell it's palpable, says Gottlieb. Now, Gottlieb is the guy who started the Instagram account at IA Stories. The strike everywhere in the world is the worker's most powerful tool to improve their lives. But in recent decades, strike activity in America has been almost non-existent. Take a look at this chart. Strike, uh, strikes used to be a common occurrence. It was like a part of life. But the 1980s saw a collapse in strike activity that we've really never recovered from. Now, 2021 looks like it may mark a turning point. You know, we argue about politics all day, but without labor power, it's mostly just talk. To hammer the point home, I think it's worth showing a clip from one of the best labor movies ever made, Mate One. It was written and directed by John Sayles and was released in 1987 at the height of the Reagan era as strike activity was collapsing fast. Chris Cooper, in his film debut, delivers this speech about the power of a strike after he sees some white mine workers racially abusing James Earl Jones. Union men my ass.
6: You won't be treated like men. You won't be treated fair? But well, you ain't men to that coal company. Your equipment, like a shovel, a gondola car, a hunk of wood brace. they use you until you wear out or you break down or you bury it under a slate fall, and then they'll get a new one. And they don't care what color it is or where it comes from. It doesn't matter how much coal you can load or how long your family has lived on this land. If you stand alone, you're just so much shit to those people. Do you think this man is your enemy? Huh? This is a worker. Any union keeps this man out, ain't a union. It's a goddamn club. Now they got you fighting white against colored, native against foreign, holler against holler. When you know there ain't but two sides of this world, them that work and them that don't. You work, they don't. That's all you got to know about the enemy. You say you got guns. Well, I know that you all are brave men. And I know you could shoot it out with the company if you had to. But the coal company don't want this union. The state government don't want it. The federal government don't want it. And they're all of them just waiting for an excuse to come down and crush us to nothing. Fellas, we're in a hole full of coal gas here. The tiniest spark at the wrong time is going to be the end of us. So we got to pick away at this situation, slow and careful. we got to organize and build support. we got to work together, together, till they can't get their coal out of the ground without us because we're a union, because we're the workers, damn it, and we take care of each other. How can we shut the mines down if we don't dynamite them? The men walk out. All of them. Fat chance. And Every man that walks out on his own steam would take him to the Union. all the dagos and all the color that's what a union is fellas you better get used to it
0: now that film is great you should check it out it's on criterion channel written and directed by john sales stars great actors like chris cooper james earl Jones, and david strathairn but it was made by the men and women of iotsi Okay, I you like the say... programs? You like the shows?
1: <laughs> you know, Nando, it's funny. It's funny that you bring that up. Uh, I, 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 I think the most recent thing that I binged on Netflix is The Chestnut Man, which actually is Danish. So those workers are treated quite well. And we'll talk about that a little later when we have our friend Matt Brunick come on. Um, But no, I mean, seriously, the IATSE strike is amazing. Or I mean, you know, the the strike authorization. Um, I, you know, 98% of members voted to authorize the strike. That's huge. And I think something that's just as important is the fact that, you know, turnout among the members for that vote was something like 90%. That's almost unheard of.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's really remarkable to see. And it's, it's remarkable that, that it's, it's, it's never happened. Like they've mm-hmm. never, they, they've never gone on strike. Um, I mean, I, I, I was talking to some friends in the industry and they're like terrified. They're like, what, what do you mean? There's this is all going to shut down for, and like even if it was shut down for a week or two weeks, like the, you know, you, you realize just how much power yeah. they have. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and, and there's, there's kind of, there's, nodes like that all over the economy that Mm -hmm. that a relatively small group of people can have like an absurd amount of power i mean hollywood the the hollywood business uh, is billions and billions and billions of dollars a year and sixty thousand workers could literally bring it all down to its knees um and i I like
1: that headline you shared of uh daniel craig complaining about uh the the quantum of solace writing uh because of the writer's strike uh that movie did suck but
0: yeah (laughs) No, it did. I mean, but, and it's, but I mean, you bring up yeah. a good
1: point, which is that, you know, the writer's strike back in 2007 was disruptive enough, but at the same time, it is, you know, was nowhere near the scale of what an IATSE strike would be.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, the writers are relatively well paid. I mean, there's some writers mm-hmm. who are, you know, really struggling or whatever, but in general, if you're a working writer in Hollywood, you're, you're, you're making good money. Um, and, uh, and again, you're just not as, I mean, you're essential in the long run in the process, yeah. but you can't shut the whole thing down mm-hmm. um, by going on strike. I mean, mm-hmm. there are, there are hundreds and thousands of scripts lying around. Uh, you know, the studios have, they have shelves of scripts. They can, they can, they can bring them out and, and yeah, it sucks that they can't do rewrites and it sucks that they can't do, you know, uh, ongoing shows or whatever, but they'll, they'll figure out a way, Yeah, you know, without cameramen, <laughs> without editors, without wardrobe, costumes, uh, makeup, uh, lighting, sound, all that shit. Like, They can't do anything. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I think that the point that you bring up about how um, the working conditions, you know, that the IATSE members are facing actually, like, unfortunately and bizarrely mirror a lot of the working conditions that you see reflected in other sectors of the economy, Uh, long hours, uh, you know, uh, just unfair treatment, uh, being unable to sleep. I mean, that, I think, is really crucial because I almost feel like, you know, a lot of the media coverage about work during the pandemic has been very focused on like a small sliver of white collar work, right? So, oh, Nando disappeared. Um, But anyway, oh, you're back. back. Um, No, what I was saying is that, um, you know, a lot of the media coverage that we see around work conditions during the pandemic is stuff like, oh, we all work from home now. Like the new work is like Zoom and sweatpants and stuff. And I saw recently, there was some statistic that was like, the the percentage of people in America who actually worked from home was like 13%. Like it's something ridiculously small compared to the amount of media coverage that you saw, you know, around uh, the issue of remote work. Now, don't get me wrong. There are also issues. There are also labor issues related to remote work. Um, I know Anna, I think, has covered that on the show before. And, you know, I'm not saying that those aren't important. They are actually. uh, And and those have longer range implications as well. Um, But what I'm getting at is, you know, during this time when many of us were fortunate enough to be working from home and behind screens, like a lot of other workers, perhaps the majority of workers in the U S had the screws turned on them.
0: Yeah, no. And, and it's, you know, and to the extent that they get covered, it was, I mean, there was, there was a lot of coverage about like COVID protocols and all this stuff. And that's good. Um, there was a lot more coverage about like how they were not wanting to go back to work uh, after right. the, un- the unemployment insurance. Um, there wasn't a lot of coverage about how they're just being ground to dust you know mm-hmm. like it's because of the you know it's 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 part of you know maybe because some workers aren't going back to work that the companies are just kind of being like okay well the ones we do got we're just going to make them work 16 hour days mm-hmm. um, wh- which is just which is just crazy i mean there's no way that, that 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 is sustainable on any on any level that it's you know there's dangers there's safety uh, issues and um and it but it seems like it's had the effect of of, of, you know, sparking a little bit of a a labor revival. So we'll Mm -hmm. see.
1: Yeah, I I certainly hope so.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you got, Jen? What are you talking about today?
1: (laughs) All right. So mine is a little different. Um, It's not as tied to breaking news, but it is an issue that I've been sort of thinking through kind of constantly. And I think it'll continue to be an issue for the left and also for Democrats in the years to come. So... Over the summer, the Census Bureau released the results of the 2020 census, which revealed that in the U.S., white people seem to be slowly disappearing. Last year, the white population in the country declined for the first time in census history. Here's a quick look at how America's demographics have changed over the last two decades.
7: Go back just two censuses ago. This is 2000. Turn of the century, the country was almost 70 percent white. You could see about 12 percent Hispanic. This is what it looked like 20 years ago. Now, in the last census, 10 years ago, this is how much things changed in the first 10 years of this century. The white population went down to under 64 percent, a growing Hispanic population, a growing Asian population. So the question was in 2020, how much more would things have changed when it comes to these demographic categories? Well, the answer is changed a lot more than people were expecting. Take a look at this. Now with a new census, the numbers out today, the white population in the United States, not only is it under 60%, it's well under 60%, 57.8% wow, white. Yeah. The Hispanic population continues to grow. That's nearly 20% now, getting close to 20% a Hispanic population. The black population's pretty level. and the Asian American population, it continues to grow, now basically at 6%. So the diversification of America is continuing.
1: So for right-wing great replacement types, census confirmation of the declining white population was probably the stuff of nightmares. For others, it was cause for celebration. For instance, Michael Moore, the progressive filmmaker and author of the 2001 book, Stupid White Men and Other Sorry Excuses for the State of the Nation, tweeted, The census data collected from the 2020 census was released today, and it revealed that the number of white people in the U.S. has fallen for the first time since the first census was taken in 1790. In other words, best day ever in U.S. history. So the assumption here, which I think is shared by many liberals, is that our nation is finally going to move in a more enlightened and progressive direction once America's reactionary whites are outnumbered by their browner counterparts. As the thinking goes, more non-white people automatically translates to more democratic voters. The term for this is demographic destiny, and this idea was perhaps most famously put forward by Democratic strategist James Carville in his 2009 book, 40 More Years, How the Democrats Will Rule the Next Generation. In his book, he argued that America's diversifying and increasingly liberal youth voters would secure a lasting Democratic majority. But is it actually a surefire bet that younger non-white Americans are a lock for the Democrats? If recent trends are any indication, I wouldn't be so sure. You might remember that after the exit polls of the 2000 or of the 2020 election, these polls suggested that Trump actually increased his share of non-white voters from 2016, despite regularly being called a racist and a white supremacist by the media and by activists. Early analyses indicated that in 2020, Trump made gains with men and women of every minority group. In certain areas, such as in a number of border towns in Texas, the shift to Trump was particularly pronounced. Now, of course, let's be clear, the majority of Black, Latino, and Asian American voters still cast ballots for Joe Biden over Trump. 92% of Black voters, 59% of Latinos, and 72% of Asian Americans voted for Biden. So because of this, after last year's election, a number of liberal commentators refused to talk at all about the people that shifted to Trump or they wrote them off as politically insignificant. To cite one example, New York Times columnist Roxane Gay wrote, too many white liberals will obsess over early exit polls, indicating that 20% of black men and a significant number of the overly broad categories of Latinos and Asians voted for Mr. Trump. They'll do this instead of reckoning with how more white women voted for the president this time around and how white men remain the most significant demographic of his base. They will say that once more, black women saved America from itself, which, of course, we did, even though some things don't deserve salvation. So I personally believe this line of thinking is a mistake. Since the 2020 election, we now have even more evidence that Democrats are losing a non-negligible number of working class voters who are not white. According to the data firm Catalyst, which, by the way, no relation to Jacobin's sister publication, Catalyst Journal, in 2020, working class people of color shifted to Trump at an even greater rate than their professional counterparts. As the Pew Research Center found, 41 percent of Latino voters without a college degree voted for Trump compared to only 30 percent of Latino voters with a college degree. To put it another way, 81% of Latino Trump voters did not have a college degree. So the reason it's important to pay attention to this now is precisely because of the same demographic changes that Michael Moore and others have been celebrating. As the non-white segment of the population grows, Democrats absolutely cannot and should not take these voters for granted. Political scientist Rui Teixeira has estimated that since 2012, running against Trump twice, Democrats have lost 18 points off of their margin among non-white working class voters. So how exactly should Democrats respond to this ongoing erosion of their former coalition? Well, for one thing, instead of doubling down on never-ending culture wars, which unfortunately is often their specialty, Democratic politicians who seriously want to win should start paying attention to what exactly matters to this ostensible base. Take a look at how one voter responded to last year's Democratic messaging.
6: Biden beat Donald Trump among
3: Latinos by two to one, a critical margin. But it was the president who increased his share of the Latino vote compared to 2016. And that was crucial in key states. Democrats sort of thought
2: that the Latino community would naturally be drawn to their party, given the
7: negative rhetoric by Donald Trump. Everyone thinks that if you're a Latino, that you're a Democrat and you're for open borders. And I don't, I don't see that. But a lot of Latinos got, most of them that I know, got here the right way. And so we care about a lot of other things other than just immigration.
1: And it's not just one person. This also bears out in the data. As Roy Teixeira put it recently, the reality of the Hispanic population is that they are broadly speaking, an overwhelmingly working class, economically progressive, socially moderate constituency that cares above all about jobs, the economy and health care. For example, in the post-election wave of the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group panel survey, well over 70 percent of Hispanic voters rated jobs, the economy Healthcare and the coronavirus as issues that were very important to them. No other issues even came close to this level. Crime as an issue rated higher with these voters than immigration or racial equality, two issues that Democrats assumed would clear the path to big gains among Hispanic voters. So the funny thing is that despite what the media sometimes suggests, Economically progressive, socially moderate constituency that cares above all about jobs, the economy, and health care actually also describes a significant portion of Black voters, Asian-American voters, and in fact, working-class voters of all races. Surveys consistently show that Democratic-leaning working-class voters list their top priorities as health care, social security, Medicare, the economy, and jobs. And what might be just as significant for the Democrats both now and in the future is that these are also the same priorities of many non-voters. When surveyed, non-voters of all races are actually more likely than voters on the whole to express support for unions, raising the minimum wage and increased government spending on healthcare, public education and the social safety net. In other words, there's actually a pretty clear way forward for Democrats and progressives to build a winning coalition in the years to come. But they'll never do it by sitting around and simply waiting for demography to run its course.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's always funny when you realize that uh, the Joe Biden won the election uh, because of a huge swing in white male support for him compared to 2016. Uh, white
1: men <laughs> saved us. No, I'm just. They saved us. They <laughs> saved
0: us. <laughs> yeah, um, I think. I mean, I, I worked at Univision uh, before before. You know many years ago and uh it 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 gave me like a an interesting look uh inside uh, you know what we would call kind of the the Latino voting block or the hispanic voting block or whatever um and and I think that there's just a uh, a tendency from a lot of liberal commentators to um assume that there is a very similar dynamic to what's going on with with black voters and i i just think that there's just a fundamental misunderstanding and that there is some level of coherence to uh the black experience in america that there is that there is a sort of a lot of unifying things um in that uh that just is completely absent from from latinos you know broadly speaking i mean i think people forget it's not this is not like ancient history i mean people are talking about the swing um for uh, latinos for trump but um, in 2004, Latinos voted for George W. Bush almost, uh, almost at 50%, you know, mm-hmm. like he got about uh, almost 50% of the Latino vote, which was unthink, which would have been unthinkable um, in say 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's starting to, to swing back. So it's just same, a much same more Asian Americans. Right. It, it's much more, you know, fluid and uh, up for grabs voters than than a lot of liberals, uh, give them Let's credit say, for it in any way. Yeah, anyway. yeah So sure. I, yeah. I
1: think that the up for grabs is kind of the key here, right? And I think that this is where the Democrats very often, or what I was trying to get at by, you know, try, trying to debunk this idea of demographic destiny is that it's not that these voters are naturally conservative, as, you know, you sometimes hear like Republicans try to say about yeah. like Catholic Latinos or like model minority Asians or whatever, like, oh, this is a natural constitu- constituency for us because like these groups have like you know conservative family values or whatever no I mean sure maybe some. I mean that can describe like literally anybody probably but the point is that the the, these groups are up for grabs I also want to add that um Democrats like don't campaign to these groups very hard, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned this on the Jacobin show before. So like, maybe I sound a bit like a broken record, but something I think about a lot is that Bernie Sanders won California in the primaries. California is the most populous, most diverse state in the union. And, you know, part of the reason why, I mean, the reason why Bernie won is not because Californians are just so progressive that they flock to him. The reason he won is because he had a killer ground game early and, you know, Uh, With a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning of the race, he campaigned very heavily among Latino and Asian American working class voters. And as a result, I mean, lots of people don't bother campaigning to those groups at all, because they're thought of as non voters. So it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, a vicious cycle of why would we reach out to them, they're not going to vote. Bernie sort of broke that mold where he was like, I'm going to actually campaign to these people. Um, I'm not going to do it in like a freaky or like extra woke way. I'm just going to, you know, talk about bread and butter issues. And it worked. Both of those groups turned out in droves for Bernie, voted for him. I mean, I, I know I know that Asian Americans voted for Bernie over Biden in California by a margin of like two to one. I think with Latinos, it was even more. I think, I mean, I think that like, I don't know what the numbers are off, off the top of my head or like, I forget. But like, it was, like, I mean, you know, he. The point is that like these groups are not necessarily inherently conservative or inherently liberal. Um. Yeah. The point is that you have to campaign to them.
0: Yeah, and as Matt Bruning point is pointing out in the in the behind the scenes chat that he ran up the score uh, with Latinos in Nevada as well. Um. I and, I and can.
1: Asians, Matt.
0: <laughs> and Asians. There you go. Don't forget about the AAPI. Matt, come on. That's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I I um I canvassed for bernie in spanish uh during uh, during the last election i'd made phone calls for bernie in spanish in the last election. i talked to a lot of like older um you know mexican mexican people and things like that and i remember like talking to uh like a very old sounding grandma, uh, in Spanish. And I was like, hola, you know, llamando de Bernie Sanders, whatever. And she's like, ah, see, sí, Bernie. Yes. See, sí, see, sí, see, sí. uh, you know, my, my, my niece, uh, she tells me that he, you know, he cares about us. He cares about us. So, you know, yes, I, you, I'm going to vote for him. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, that that's nice. You know, like you see, like he showed in a way that, that felt very authentic that he, that he actually cared and that he actually was campaigning for their vote. And and I think that that's, uh, that that was a, a, a huge part of why he was able to get so much support. Um, I think that, again, I think people, the, the, the black vote with, with uh, Democrats and how it's over 90%. I think that a, a huge part of that is that there are a lot of, black voters and that there is a a black leadership class that that kind of did did deliver real gains for people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the people like there's a lot of black voters that remember civil rights or or, or shortly after the civil rights, uh, you know, pieces of legislation. And there was a lot of black politicians who were around at that time, um, you know, uh, that that were part of that movement and delivered those gains and therefore have a huge amount of credibility. Uh, There's just no equivalent for for the Hispanic vote. I mean, the last... Uh, you know, the biggest immigration amnesty in, in, in recent times was, was Ronald Reagan in 1986. Um, and it was Bill Clinton that militarized the border after NAFTA. Mm-hmm. So uh, there there is just isn't an equivalent uh, version of it. Like, But as Richard Ru- Shara points out, because they're working class, because they're, you know, because they are more progressive on economic issues, they still vote uh, Democrat in majorities. But that's not a guaranteed thing if they don't do anything for them, if they don't deliver right. any concrete gains. Right. Um, You know, there's no reason why they they won't go Republican.
1: Or if during campaign season, the Democrats, like, keep hammering on the culture war stuff and don't actually foreground the bread and butter issues, like, I I see that as being a political failure, too, so.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I think it's about time to welcome friend of the show, Big Bad Matty Brunig. Uh, Matt, how you doing? Matt is the founder of the People's Policy Project, uh, one of the most... uh, I think just remarkable organizations that we have on the left—a much needed thing. Uh, finally, we have our own think tank uh, to fight the uh, on on their own turf. Uh, Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well. Um, Matt, I wanted I think, to start. Well, sorry, go ahead. sorry,
1: just really quick. Matt, you're you're basically our unofficial welfare state correspondent at this point. Uh, Matt's been on the Jacobin channel a lot, so definitely check out the other videos.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Matt, I wanted to start, uh, you know, you had this recent piece in in, in Jacobin uh, uh, called McDonald's workers in Denmark won good pay and benefits through striking, which fits nicely with the segment that I did uh, a little earlier. Uh can you explain just why the McDonald's jobs in Denmark are so good? Uh and and do, does McDonald's even taste better in Denmark? How's their Big Mac?
2: <laughs> they do sell beer in Denmark, so uh That explains <laughs> it. <laughs> um yeah, so in 1981 McDonald's came to Denmark. Uh it was the 20th country that they moved into um after they started in the US as we all know. Um, At that point, they had resisted unions in every single country except for Sweden, which they had accepted on day one. And they came into Denmark and said, we're not going to deal with the unions. Um, And the way that wages and conditions are typically set in those countries is every few years, the unions for every sector come together and the employers for every sector come together and they hash out a deal. And it sets the wages, it sets the work rules, hours, breaks, all that stuff. And those agreements are not binding. They're not like collective bargaining agreements here, where if someone breaks it, you go to arbitration, or you go to a judge, or something like that. They're uh, just kind of uh, guidelines that people voluntarily follow, you know, voluntarily in quotes, I guess you would say. And McDonald's said it wasn't going to do that, and... The Danish unions initially kind (laughs) of seemed a little bemused by it and and tried to get them on board, tried to explain to them, you know, hey, like, this is something, you know, this is not really something you can choose not to follow. There were a lot of uh, newspaper articles, a little bit of boycotting here and there, just trying to get McDonald's waked up to the fact that, you know, they can't just not follow the uh, sector agreement. And uh, McDonald's kept on, and in 1988, the unions kind of got fed up. That was about seven years after McDonald's arrived, and they said, all right, well, we're just going to go ahead and call strikes everywhere. Um, not just at McDonald's, we're going to call strikes at every other business and sector that McDonald interacts with. The dock workers went on strike, stopped unloading McDonald's containers. The construction workers went on strike and uh, stopped building McDonald's stores, including they, they just shut down a, a construction site of a McDonald's that was half built. The truckers stopped delivering the food and the beer to the stores. The uh, the uh, what do you go? The typesetters, the people who put ads in newspapers, refused to run McDonald's ads in newspapers. I mean, it just went on and on down the line. Sixteen different unions uh, came together and just basically shut McDonald's down. And uh, one thing I didn't point out in my piece was that at, at one point, actually, the strike spread out into other countries. So Finland, um, they had some McDonald's there, and they had been unionized um, in the interim period, and, and they started striking and boycotting McDonald's in Finland as well. And so the pressure really came on, and McDonald's, just a few months after all this began, they, they gave up and, and started following the sector agreement, which was the hotel and restaurant workers agreement in Denmark.
0: Hmm.
1: I think that uh, something interesting you point out in your piece is that, uh, well, first of all, you know, as you said, lots of people don't know this backstory. We just kind of take it for granted that like, you know, like Danish McDonald's are great. Uh, you know, they they make twenty two dollars an hour and they have like all of these great benefits. Um, so, you know, not only was this the product of strikes, but you point out in your piece that this actually um this actually tells us something about the construction of the famed nordic welfare state right which i think a lot of people like at the very worst end of the spectrum just kind of attribute to like a like happy or like generous nordic culture or like mm-hmm. you know something they're all be white like, nando <laughs> you went there yeah some people say well like they're uh you know racially or ethnically homogenous that's why they're able to have this welfare state um but but that's not the whole that that's not the story um what do these strikes actually tell us about the Nordic welfare state?
2: Yeah, I mean the the real story of the Nordic societies are the labor unions. That's that's the that's what runs everything else. Um labor unions put together the welfare state, the labor unions set all these labor market conditions. The labor unions kind of you know, ran the show in the middle of the century, uh, both in the state and outside the state. Um, these days, you know, maybe they're a little bit weaker than they were. You know, it's a, you know, neoliberalism has hit, has hit everyone. But even today, they still do stuff like this. You know, not infrequently. Um, so yeah, I mean, the labor union is is at the core of at the core of all this. Uh, I included some other story, brief stories in the in the piece that I wrote, for example. Um, in 2019, in Finland, there was a postal strike, and they just shut down all the airlines and ports and docks and all that kind of stuff, just, just to protect the pay of 700 workers. And that was a state-owned company, um, and they got that done, and the prime minister actually resigned as a result of the strike. And then and then, the, probably the most telling story was, I think it was 2018, this was also in Finland, the Conservatives had won the elections, they were going to make it easier for small employers to fire people. They had the votes to do it, they were ready to go, you know, there's no problem like as far as parliamentary passage goes, and the unions just started going on strike uh, against the bill, not against an employer or a firing, but just against the legislation and they end up pulling the legislation um, because the strikes, you know, so we're just just so damaging, and, you know, what can you do up against rolling strike waves, so.
0: I imagine that when the um, labor unions in the Nordic countries First came to be that there, there wasn't particularly favor- favorable conditions uh, for them, um, because I think there's a. I just wanted to ask because there's a lot of talk now here about the passage of the PRO Act uh, and you know labor organizing for the PRO Act to, to reform our uh, labor laws, which are, which are quite restrictive compared to uh, places like the Nordic countries. But it seems like kind of a chicken and egg situation, which you, you know, you need the labor to pass the the laws, but you need the laws to get the labor. Uh, What's the, how do we get out of that, that kind of chicken and egg situation
2: yeah, you know I mean, I support the pro act of course i don 't really know how to get out of the chicken and egg situation. I know there are a lot of people who claim to know <laughs> how to revitalize the labor movement. Um, you know I, I was going to be a happy soldier in that movement uh, when I graduated law school and I, I worked in it for a couple of years, but i don 't really know how to get that going again it 's really, and like you said, I mean when it got it's, when it got started in, in all the countries it wasn 't legal, uh, you know <laughs> the labor unions were never welcomed um in Sweden the workers weren't even allowed to vote when labor unions started going like the unions won the right to vote for workers there so you know
0: yeah
1: i i okay so we'll we'll come back to the nordic states uh in in a bit but i i want to actually return to the U S for a second, um, because I noticed that you actually had a piece of commentary today about unemployment insurance. And of course the latest jobs report, um, 8 million removed from, uh, unemployment insurance obviously last month only 194,000 new jobs um by the way i i feel like you were really quick on this because didn't the jobs report just come out literally this morning
2: yeah it came out at 8:30. 30 i knew it was coming out so you yeah know, i was ready yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah. set the alarm you set your alarm <laughs> right <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah, <laughs> i
1: kind of figured you were like ready to pounce on this because you have been covering um unemployment insurance obviously you know since it it was about to be taken off. Um, so I, I want to bring up uh, just a graph from People's Policy Project, uh, which just I think is a really stark uh, depiction of, you know, how many jobs uh, were not gained after you know, all of these people were thrown off of unemployment insurance. And, you know, I I, I wanted to ask you, what does this tell us about unemployment in this country? Uh, because you know, I think that obviously, whenever we um, hear about politicians who want to throw people off unemployment, or even when we look at some of these programs like, um, you know, cash welfare in the 90s, or, you know, like Medicaid in Arkansas, like just a few years ago, where politicians want to attach these very stringent work requirements to these programs, the rationale is always, well, we need to get people back to work. Um, we've seen that that doesn't work. Uh what does this tell us about unemployment in this country? And like, what can we do to actually make it good?
2: Yeah, I mean, narrowly, I think the pandemic is an interesting situation, because it's so novel, you don't really know what's going to happen. So, I mean, it's conceivable that these cuts, these cuts were quite brutal. I mean, cutting people down to $0 of income, like 8 million people in a few weeks, cutting them down to $0 of income, that's pretty extreme. Even other countries, when they want to cut benefits to try to get people out, they'll cut them by, you know, 20% or 30% or something like that, not 100%. So it's not unreasonable to think something might happen. But uh, it didn't, and we knew it wasn't going to happen because about half the states cut the benefits in the summer, and it didn't work then either. Um, so I think we know that, at least in the pandemic circumstances, that unemployment insurance has not been an impediment to, to employment at all. Um, more generally, you know, the U.S. has very stingy welfare state, has very the stingiest unemployment system in the OECD. Um, Most countries, like we have 13 to 26 weeks at very low wage replacement rates. Um, We also don't provide any benefits to new job seekers. Like if you just graduated from college or something like that, you don't get benefits, even though you're looking for work. We have a very, very limited unemployment system. And our employment rates are not especially high. They're not impressive at all. I mean, uh, most countries in the OECD have higher prime age employment rates than we have. So... Whatever it is, it's, uh, you know, high employment is definitely, uh, or I should say higher employment is definitely compatible with higher unemployment benefits than we have, so...
0: Things you've been hammering on, uh, recently is the Democrats' proposal for paid family leave. Uh, I believe it was designed by Richie Neal. Is that true? Uh, What's going on with the paid family leave proposal that they're? What's wrong with it? Why is it bad?
2: Yeah. So the uh, the Democrats had this paid family leave bill for a long time. It was called the Family Act. You know, it's one of those weird acronym bills. So all caps Family Act and. Uh, It was pretty simple. You know, it had some problems, but the basic design made sense. Uh, You are going to have a Social Security benefit, just like uh, old age pension and disability benefits. When you needed leave, you'd contact Social Security Administration, fill out a form. They'd look at your work history, because they know every dollar you've ever earned, and they would figure out what, what benefit you were eligible for. And then, about a few months ago, it started going through the house, and I noticed that oh, this bill is changing a lot. And what it's changing into is they're now saying that employers who want to can create their own paid leave system uh, using a third-party insurance company, so a private insurance company, and then the federal government will give them money to do that. So it's becoming very similar to our healthcare system, right, where you're going to have employer-provided paid leave insurance through a private insurance company, which the federal government will subsidize. Um, and if, if that doesn't happen and you fall through those cracks, then you might get on a state plan, you might get on a federal plan if you can figure out, you know, how to navigate all that. Um, and the, what that piece I think you were uh, highlighting, I've written a number of pieces on this, but in addition to just why are we bringing private insurers in this, it just doesn't make any sense. We don't need a private company to profit off of just literally sending people checks when they, like, have a kid or something, you know, like th- that's a pretty basic thing any, any government could do. Um, but in addition to that, they designed it in a very goofy way. Where what they're going to do is, if you have a, if you're an employer, you will get a, um, you will get 90% of the average cost of paid leave per employee. Uh, that's the amount of cash you'll get. And the upshot of all this is that. Employers, obviously, are going to have a wide range of of actual costs for administering paid leave, and so if you're an employer who has a lower than average cost, for instance, you have a bunch of low-wage workers who are not going to get very high benefits anyways, then you can essentially pocket the difference between your actual costs and 90% of the average cost, which is what the check is going to be. And if you have above average cost, you can just not provide the benefit and leave that up to the feds. And so you get adverse selection in and out of this scheme, which means it's going to cost way more money. Um, I'm not even sure the CBO has picked this up yet, but the CBO did a score of the bill and said it cost uh, 20% more than the Family Act. So,
1: Yeah, I like that Richie Neal uh, was just like, let's model this, what could be a very simple program after what might be the most convoluted Byzantine and hated system that America yeah. is currently using.
2: No, it's very bizarre. You know, they, the Democrats like to say, uh, well, you know, if we were starting from scratch, of course we wouldn't do the health insurance system this way, but it is what it is. And that's why we have to make these incremental reforms and can't mm-hmm. do Medicare for all. And here it's like, well, you're basically starting from scratch with paid leave. Like a small fraction of the workforce has some kind of paid leave, but it's really minimal. Like this is as close to scratch as you're going to get. And no, absolutely not. That's not what they would do. They would basically just recreate the same system. And it's funny, when he put out the bill, he actually, you know, they put out a list of, of people who support the bill, you know, AARP gives a nice little quote, and CAP gives a nice little quote, and whatever. He actually included a quote from the president of a life insurance company. Oh, God. That was like, this is great. We love this bill. So... Yeah. yeah
1: the fact the fact that they have to like go to such lengths to make a build this bad you know obviously makes makes me like think that there is some sort of ideology behind this. And it reminds me, I mean, you've probably seen that Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders are sparring this week because Joe Manchin, you know, earlier this week famously came out and said something like, well, well, I've been clear who we are as a nation. Uh, uh, I don't believe that we should turn our society into an entitlement society. Mm. Now, so this is why I want to get back to the Nordic states, right? Because I think that, you know, on you could say that a lot of the Nordic states are an entitlement society by Joe Manchin's definition. The citizens of, you know, Denmark, for example, literally are entitled to cradle-to-grave social services. In Finland, your favorite, uh, new parents are entitled to a baby box, which is, you know, not just, uh, I mean, it, it, it. they have, you know, social supports as parents, but the box is literally a box that they're given full of, like, diapers and clothes, and the box can be turned into a crib. You've talked about this before. So, you know, I guess the question is, you um, the Nordic societies, which we might call entitlement societies, actually seem to be working pretty well. So, like, why did they work so well? And it, I mean, clearly, the entitlement part isn't actually hurting them. Right.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, the phrase that they actually use is they call themselves welfare societies, which is even an even <laughs> more loaded term, I imagine, in the American context. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the thing is, we have a lot of quote unquote entitlements already, right? If you once you reach a certain age, you get Medicare and you get uh, the old age pension. If you're disabled, you get a certain amount of money. I got a kid in public school right now. It's like we have sort of like a half built welfare state of sorts. It's just that we miss, we're missing a lot of benefits that they have. Uh, most obviously around family benefits, right? The child allowance, the paid time off, the uh, usually they'll cover health care for all kids, including dental, the free school lunch. We have that a little bit, though it's means tested. Like, you can go on down the line. Um, and we just don't have those things. And it's sort of weird, because you know there are a lot of different ways to think about the welfare state. But one that I'm especially partial to is, if you kind of look at it closely, one of the things you'll notice is, welfare benefits mostly go to people who can't work uh, or who aren't currently working. And the obvious reason for doing something like that is that in a capitalist society, if you don't work, you don't get money, but you still need money to live, right? So if you're retired, you don't make a wage, but you need money, so we give you Social Security. Same if you're disabled and so on. Well, children, it's the exact same story, right? They don't work, but they need stuff to live. And so that's why you have child care benefits and education benefits and the child allowance and paid leave, which is basically kind of like a child care benefit for the parent. All that is basically just compensating for the fact that in a market economy, children is as if they don't exist. There's nothing an employer can do to account for the fact that, you know, employee one has three kids and employee two has zero kids. Um, and this, was, this is how the welfare state used to be talked about. I mean, before the 50s or, or maybe even a little bit before then, if you go to these other countries, I put a, a piece on maprunic.com not too while ago where I had a, a graphic that was from 1943 or something that was in Switzerland. And the graphic is just titled, Why Family Allowances? And they had this graphic uh, where they showed two workers working at the exact same factory who had the exact same wages. And one of them went home, and he lived in a house by himself. And the other one went home, and he lived in a house where he had a wife, three kids, and an elderly mom that was living with him. And the captions were like, you know, identical workers, very different lives, extremely different lives, you know, like the the one who lives by himself has essentially six times the income of the one who doesn't, because he has to stretch his income across all of these retired parents and kids and all the rest of it. And so that was why family allowance. Family allowance is to equalize these things. Um, and yeah, so I mean, that that's like a... I feel like that's just kind of gone from the discourse generally. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that's, that's the graphic. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting, and it's, no one talks about the welfare state this way, but it, that, that's what makes sense, and that's why universal benefits also make sense. Because notice, in this graphic, they're not saying the guy is poor. Yeah, he has to care for five relatives, but he, he may not be poor. He works at a factory. He could have a good enough wage to cover them, but he's unequal. He's unequal to the guy who's living alone. And that's why you have the family equalization fund, I think is what they call it, so.
1: Well, but Matt, have you ever considered that the children and the elderly should probably be earning their own wages?
2: No, I'm just kidding.
1: I think I think we make this joke literally every time you come on. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, children are or banned from working. Mm -hmm. That's you know. Maybe they could they could you know relax that ban for parents of (laughs) children of low income parents. Uh
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, well Matt, I want to ask about because uh, the things that you say you you talk about this stuff, you know, you you at the dinner table with your family and they say, Well, but there's both the they're very small countries, they're all white uh and they're all committing suicide all the time uh that's the, the other <laughs> one you hear which i'm i i haven't like looked into it, but I'm like sure is bullshit uh is I've the suicide heard,
1: I've heard that Den- no I heard that Denmark is like the happiest country it, it always ranks as like the happiest country in the world yeah,
0: yeah
2: it does, and you know people will fight about these measures of happiness, you know I think the most the biggest critique is just like it's more of a measure of just kind of. Broad-based contentment, I guess, which that seems fine as well. But it's, I don't know, people get mad about that sometimes, and like, it's not really happiness. It's just that they kind of have a, have an okay, contented attitude with their life. And it's like, okay, well, that's what I want. So, <laughs> right,
1: right, right, yeah, that sounds all right. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, yeah can I you mean, truly
0: be happy in this life, Matt? Uh, you know, that's a, that's another question. The other yeah, yeah, happiness, into. even possible. <laughs>
2: The other thing people point out, I mean, you're right with the suicide stuff. I don't know where that data is now. But of course, they'll point out that, hey, these are not perfect societies. They have all sorts of problems. In Finland, they like to drink a lot. Um, There are domestic violence issues, you know, just like anywhere. Um, They do have high rates of antidepressant use, but then you look into it and it's like, well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's dark. Like, like twenty hours a day, and you know, like, so it's like, yeah, I'm not saying I would even necessarily want to go move there because it's like a frozen, you know, dark, <laughs> frosty, you know, like kind There's no of.
0: No 7-Eleven there, dude. There's no 7-Eleven.
2: yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, their their biggest, they do have their their biggest uh, like uh, grocery store. They're like Walmart in uh, in Finland is a is a consumer co-op, um, and they have oh, they wow. have convenience stores. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's like yeah, there are a lot of issues there, and you know, if you had to choose between L.A. and living in Helsinki, you probably would choose L.A. because Helsinki is, is cold and dreary. Um, but we're talking about their economic system; we're not talking about their weather, you know, or other problems they might have. So,
0: yeah,
1: I I, I want to just point out one last thing, which is um, Matt. You talked you talked about this when I like interviewed you for a different thing, like ages ago, but an an interesting thing about, I think, uh, the sort of American response to the Nordic states now or like the right wing American response is, you know, you pointed out that uh, the conservatives used to be like the Nordic states are just so awful and like their economies are doing so terribly because they're socialist. Now that it's, you can't really dispute that those countries are doing really well. Now conservatives have sort of flipped and they've been like, well, actually these countries are doing well because they're secretly capitalist. Yeah. Is, that, is that still going on? <laughs> (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. You actually see a lot of people on all sides kind of doing that. It seems to behoove people in different ways. For conservatives, of course, they want to, you know, distance any successful country from socialism. Same thing for liberals who will do the same thing. And I remember, I think one one time it was Jonathan Chain, or it may have been someone else, he wrote a piece that said, you know, Denmark is... uh, like neoliberalism on steroids or something like that it's just like okay I don't know what to tell you <laughs> like, is like is it neoliberalism when you just like leave McDonald's stuff in the ocean and just like won't won't unpack it Um, but they'll do that and then you get it on the left too because the left yeah. you know the hard left wants to be like look we want to do we want to go beyond mm-hmm. what they have done and so we want to kind of distance that and like I get why all those motivations play out that way but you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm willing to say, well, you know, on a on a kind of spectrum, <laughs> they're definitely much further down the line. You know, in, in Finland, the the government owns 30 percent of the wealth, uh, and yeah. in Norway, it's it's 60 percent. They've got state-owned enterprises all over the place. Um, you know, and then the welfare state, and then these labor unions that. You know, wh- whether you call that socialism or not, clearly they have a lot of power and a lot more say in what happens in the economy than workers here have. So I'm I'm more comfortable just saying they're moving down the socialist path and have gone much further than we have. And it seems to be working well. So let's let's at least try to catch up with them and maybe, you know, run run by them if if we ever get to the point where we could do that, you
0: know. Now, Matt, uh, just to wrap up, I've always wanted to ask you this. Uh, you know, we've never spoken about it. You've been known in the past to make people mad online sometimes. But I think the thing that makes the people the most mad, and if you don't want to talk about this, that's fine, because it might be too personal, is uh, your thing with electric uh, stoves instead of gas stoves. Yeah. What's explain explain the why the electric stove is better than the gas stove, because people get very mad about that. And it's a they very do. touchy subject.
2: Yeah, no, you know, for the obvious reason, burning um, methane in your house is is not good for you, for your health, not good for the environment. It's uh, associated with asthma and other kinds of problems in children. I think anyone who thinks about it for a second would realize that having a, you know, just burning natural gas in the middle of your house is like not a great idea. The reason I, I pick it up is because there's a certain kind of like, lib foodie culture that's really kind of fetishizes the gas stove and those are people that are really like fun to irritate and so Mm. you know but they also love the climate they love the climate and they love their like foodie gas stove Mm. stuff and so Mm. we've got this tension that we can just we can just (laughs) get them pissed off about
0: (laughs) are you saying the libs are hypocrites dude
1: we would never Yeah.
0: yeah Well, all right. Uh, well,
1: Matt Matt Brunig, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, please get back to trolling people about stoves on the internet. And we'll see you for another State of the Welfare State soon, I'm sure.
2: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: All righty. Love Matty B. You know, it's like he does the work that like I don't want to do, you know, <laughs> like... Like read the fucking jobs report uh, you <laughs> right, know. at
1: 830 <laughs> a.m.
0: Yeah, oh, actually, exactly.
1: um, I, m- I meant to shout this out when he was on. I think he's gone now, but um, his website, the People's Policy Project, recently got a new makeover and it looks so slick now. It's like it's like better than any think tank website I've I've seen in a long time. So definitely, you know, check out the website, if not for the excellent reports and white papers for the aesthetics.
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I can't stress enough just how important it is to have the people's policy project in our lives. I mean, we talk a lot in theory about like building up left institutions and like Matt actually went and did it. He built the left institution. I um, mean, you know, I think, uh, you know, when Bernie first ran in 2016, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure uh, around. And what we people don't realize is that like Congress people like don't write legislation mm. really anymore they kind of outsource it to think tanks and when the think tanks are all funded by you know raytheon or whatever uh they uh they write legislation that is favorable to them and then they just hand it to the politicians, the politicians are like oh okay let me just like change a couple words you know and then mm-hmm. uh and, and then submit it so having institutions like the people policy project that can like say go hey ilan omar you want to do something about this here's a little piece of legislation that you could do and then a lot of like, oh, that's great. Let me let me implement it. Uh, so, yeah, very exactly. important work at the People's Policy Project. I highly recommend anyone uh, who's out in the audience to become a subscriber. I don't know what you would call it, like a patron. Like I don't know. It's like a, you can you can give them like a monthly. Yeah, uh, you can give them like a donor. You can give them like a monthly subscription fee and it helps their work.
1: Yeah. It's really worthwhile. Uh, um, Matt is a very prolific writer. So, you know, you get these updates such as the one on the jobs report pretty regularly. So, you know, the point obviously is is uh, not to like get your money's worth, but you will.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, should we bring in young Kale? Here, Here he is. I don't know. Do did,
1: did we have questions today? I for, We forgot to say that we will be
5: taking questions. No, no, this is the part where I say, hey guys, I'm on screen and we take questions live. So if you have some questions for us that you want us to answer right now, we can do that. And you just send us either a super chat or if you are a YouTube member, a Jacobin YouTube member, you can just send us something, You just write a message and um, email us too, I don't know. Uh, But uh, before we get to that, I do want to say that... um, today actually, everyone, we're, we record these live on Fridays and as you know, Fridays are when new music drops and we got a pretty nice new uh, music EP that you should all check out. Our uh, pr- our beat producer, our beat maestro that uh, produces all of the intros for Weekend's Jacobin Show and some of the other stuff we've done in the past has put out uh, an EP with all of that music <laughs> called Jacobin 24-7 Beats to Organize To and wow. uh, it's available on streaming services. So shout out to to Zonki uh, and listen to it. Hell yeah. That, yeah!
0: that that appears Amazing. to be
1: lasers shooting out of Boscar's eyes. Also, which it's the
0: it's the it's the crypto thing, right?
5: <laughs> That's a crypto thing, right? Yeah, it's uh, right. <laughs> I don't kale. I don't know Z- Zonki. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's like uh, I think it's like uh, if you've been like crypto pilled.
1: Uh, oh really? You, oh, you put that yeah. on your
0: avatar uh in whatever like online forums you you you're in, so i think like oh. i think even like jack dorsey mm. changed his avatar uh at one second i'm sure like elon musk
5: did it too or whatever uh I think yeah the, I, think, I, think I think it's, it's just, a crypto pill it might be used in that way i think it's just kind of a more broad meme trend of uh <laughs>
1: I, you know, Zunkies I, I, in the I, would like, like to believe that <laughs> dabbles in crypto. You know,
0: of course he does. Are you crazy? Of course he does. <laughs>
5: yeah, has the worst Google searches you can imagine. Like not like not perverse things, but like just actually bad things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Like is Raytheon hiring uh, right. <laughs>
1: right, yeah, yeah. How do we get some of that Aussie money?:
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: <laughs> can we put Carlos Watson on our board <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah, no, uh, that's great. Uh, people ask about the about the song all the time. People love the song, uh, mm-hmm. so it's good so, that they can now get the song.:
5: Yeah, go, uh, go add it to your playlist on on streaming services it's available yeah if i'm not wrong it's
1: also yeah yeah it's the full song and not just the little bit that you get in the intro so yeah yeah
5: nice um yeah well uh i'm still looking for questions from our audience
0: theodore wieland question is marxism falsifiable was marx or Engels ever incorrect about their analysis or theory no they never said
5: anything wrong yeah no No, done yeah got (laughs) him Thanks.
0: Actually,
1: Nando, you know, what's funny. So we (laughs) on the Jacobin show, like when we first started, we were like, we should open it up to questions from the audience, because like weekends does that. And it seems so fun. So we did that once. And we got like, just like the most like, not like crazy, like, um, bad, but like really hard questions. Like, okay, too hard. too hard like someone came in first they were like hey like where are you guys from where did you grow up and i was like that's nice i know this one and then immediately somebody was like (laughs) how do we rebuild the labor movement after taft hartley and i was like "Mm, paul (laughs) Mm.
0: yeah no yeah sometimes they're hard i I just like say when i don't know the answer to the question i just say i don't know you know I, i i don't know that's always a good uh, a good thing to say. Yeah, Nando uh, passes it
5: to me, and I go on for about fifteen minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah. um, and well, don't answer the
5: question. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a question, maybe for Nando. This is uh, completely indulgent, but is there a Marxist analysis or commentary on Frank Herbert's Dune?
0: Mm. I mean, there is. I mean, the, the politics of Dune are quite interesting. Um, I don't think that they're like particularly left wing, but they're not. Also, they're also not like you know, they're not. They're not easy to. Uh, I guess, categorize on, on a normal spectrum. I mean, there's, he has a pretty sophisticated uh, political economy that he created within Dune um, and has kind of a, um, you know, pretty interesting analysis of like imperialism and things like that, but, and like, you know, ecological things. And, and, but like, I don't know that he's like a, uh, a particularly like, I I I don't think that Frank Herbert would call himself a socialist um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the pieces, that's one of the reasons, the fact that Dune has such a, um, well-crafted political economy is, uh, as I think part of the part of its enduring appeal, um, because it's, it's a very strange book. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's like a very strange read in the way, in the way, like the prose is, is kind of, um, laid out and, and, and there's nothing quite like it in that sense. Like I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's strange. Mm Uh, but the, but the world it creates and the, um, and the economic, the the way like economic massive economic factors are actually like dictating, um, the events in the book is I think one of the reasons why people find it so, uh, so fascinating.
5: Yeah. I, I know I've been meaning to read it for a long time.
0: It's fun. I'll wait for
1: the movie. No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Movies, I mean, that is coming movies. out.
5: <laughs> yeah. Um, so wait, did, you, did you read the book before watching the David Lynch movie or vice versa?
0: I have not watched the David Lynch movie.
5: Oh, okay. Because yeah. I was asking someone, I have a friend who's really into Dune, and he was saying that he ended up watching the Lynch movie before. And then, of course, like that world ends up coloring how he reads the book. And so I'm yeah. am curious because there's the whole like, you know, is the movie comparable to the book? Is the movie better or worse? And I think for a lot of people, it's just the problem that like you get stuck with like the visuals of the movie in your head when you're reading and yeah. Dune being so massive. Uh, I'm just curious, like
0: honestly, I, when I, when I saw the trailer for the new Dune, it struck me as like, that's kind of how I was imagining it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of how I imagined the worms. And, you know, I think I was a little, uh, the, you know, the, the, I, I some of the outfits I was like a little I had not imagined them that way I didn't imagine them so like mechanized in their kind of armor and shit but man uh, I was just thinking
5: like spandex just yeah like.
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just I was just like, thinking shirtless uh, yeah. <laughs> no the, and the still suits the still suits which are like a huge part of the of the book which are the you know these desert people uh, basically there's so little water and moisture that they create these suits to 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 recycle. Any moisture that comes off of your body, like any sweat or any mucus or spit, like it, it they have a mechanism to recycle it back into your body, so you don't waste any 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 water. And when uh, when I saw the still suits in the trailer, I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I imagined them too. Um, so I thought I thought the trailer at least did a good job of of
5: capturing uh, your imagination.
0: My my personal imagination. <laughs> yeah. Of, so <laughs> so for a, a look movie.
1: inside Nando's brain, watch the Dune trailer.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
5: Um, um, we, got a, we got a super chat a moment ago from Billy Big Bricks who writes, Who invented crack? I'm, I'm putting the CIA. this on the screen. Well, so we've <laughs> we there's a new article in the upcoming Jacobin that's dropping in about a month uh, by Daniel Finn on the CIA and crack. And so we might, it might actually be a really good idea to have Dan Finn on either this or Jackman show. I figured that might be up your alley, Nando. The right
0: Gary down. Webb, uh Gary Webb story, they did a movie about it with Jeremy Renner, uh written by Peter Landesman. You should check out. Uh, he broke kind of that story in the early 90s and then had his life destroyed and committed suicide. And uh, you know, he's been most of his like the 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 grant the the major thrust of his reporting has been proven correct. Uh mm-hmm. and uh and he was just like totally, his life was totally ruined uh, as a result. So, uh, yeah.
1: Nando, I feel like you're definitely the CIA correspondent. Like, uh, you know, when when we were talking before the show, Nando was like, we got to cover the CIA plot to kidnap Julian Assange.
7: Yeah. <laughs> Which, and you're like, I no. Mean, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're like no, let's talk about i like okay, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: no. I mean, I mean that is interesting. Or I mean, part of that story, you know, which you were pointing out, is that the you know during the Trump campaign, uh, certain quarters of the liberal media like totally freaked out about uh, you know the the Trump Assange like deep friendship, um, yeah. and and I think that that is obviously you know obviously has been disproven um but uh i don't know if nando you sent this clip around i don't know if you guys remember pamela anderson going on the view I love her. she she has she, i'm with pam i'm with pam she has she the perfect 100%. response
0: she did yeah. uh honestly kale uh, get on it let's book uh, let's book pam on the show yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> and uh and talk to her but um yeah i mean i just I, I mean so much about the liberals during the trump era it was so infuriating uh but this the the Assange Trump thing was one thing that was like kind of really driving me crazy uh because I was like are you guys like like you guys actually believe this shit you know like you guys actually believe this shit and then it just comes out that no it's not that Assange was uh working uh, for the Trump administration, he they were fucking trying to kill him the entire time, like literally trying to assassinate him. Uh, I, know, I know that some people uh, on the left, like, I mean, maybe I do focus too much on the CIA. I don't know. I, I think about them a lot. I just find it just totally anathema to democracy on a theoretical level, like that you mm-hmm. can't have like a secret organization that mm-hmm. has a secret budget and has no oversight and has no, like on some fundamental level, they are, the, the presence of the CIA, just like the presence of billionaires is, proof that we don't have uh uh, that we don't live in a democracy right that the the mere presence of something like that um is incompatible with democracy but then you know i just you know they they, if you look around the world uh, and whenever they try to do a little uh maybe a little redistribution a little uh social democracy in some far-flung place all of a sudden there's like cia agents crawling around Mm uh uh trying to stop it and I don't know. It's hard to deny that, you know. Yeah, like you yeah. can, people say like, "Well, it, it's not just the CIA, you know. It's often, you know, the oligarchy in those own countries." I'm like, "Yeah, of course, it's the oligarchies in these own countries." But like, yeah, if you're an oligarchy for one of these countries, it's nice to have a CIA agent like giving you unlimited funds and weapons and training yeah. fucking death squads and shit for you to do. Uh, so yeah,
5: yeah uh, Another question. Uh, we've covered this, I believe briefly in the past. I don't know if you did a full segment on it, but the any thoughts on the global minimum corporate tax just passed with the OECD?
0: Thoughts are good. Do we need a global minimum tax? I mean uh, I mean the, the question is always like uh, enforcement on these things. I think Ireland, even Ireland signed on, right? I think I saw that today. Uh, but I'm not sure. I haven't like read into it because right. I wasn't planning on doing it. Again, this is one of these hard questions.
1: Yeah, um, totally. yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, it's funny. I, well, actually, to come full circle to, you know, taxes and the CIA, um, you guys probably saw that, um, I guess, like, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, there was this release of the what's called the Pandora Papers, which again, yeah. is a kind of, a trove of whistleblower documents that shows just how much money wealthy people are offshoring uh, and, and hiding uh, from their respective governments. And I guess the latest theory is that the CIA might have been behind the release of the the Pentagon Papers yeah. because there are a lot of like Russian and Chinese interests rep- represented in the, sorry, did I say Pentagon Papers? Pandora Papers, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure. I Like, again, I haven't really looked into that angle of it. So you know, it, cu- it could be the case. It could not be the case Um, but uh, you know this is just to say like we do need some sort of global tax and some sort of global enforcement mechanism because the wealthy and corporations really like like it again it doesn't matter if we have a wealth tax in this country which of course we absolutely need but it won't it won't matter if people are just able to hide their money elsewhere
0: Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount the possibility of it, but I think that the, the presence of no Americans in the Pandora Papers uh, can also be explained by the fact that it's just legal in America for rich
1: people, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. just go and to, to Delaware. To,
0: yeah, that they don't need to do it. Oh. They don't need to. They don't. They don't need to do any of this stuff as much as uh, Europeans have to do, uh, or or people in uh, places like Latin America, where mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I think in Russia, it's something like sixty percent uh, uh, of of like the wealth is, is is offshore. Something like some crazy number. I don't know off the top mm-hmm. of my head, but. Um, you know, in, in in that in those countries, it's just it's worth it to to do it because you can uh, because the last thing they want is is for them to be taxed. Um, and I think that European celebrities, I mean, that's why like the Shakira's in there and uh, Pep Guardiola's in there and Elton John's in there uh, because uh, American rich people like it's just so much easier
5: for them to do it. Right. Um, so I mean,
0: that's 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 another part of it for sure.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Following up from the earlier super chat, Billy says this, I believe in in the same way that a uh, Latinx uh, soccer uh, announcer would say it. Let's go, base Nando. (laughs) Okay, so the other (laughs) super chat, um, Lee had said, uh, good to discuss AFL-CIO-CIA partnership um mm-hmm. yeah that's something that I think is uh under understood not understood enough um maybe just
0: under understood I got it yeah I got it
5: yeah but you know the I mean the thing that, like why we keep coming back to labor is not because we think that like the labor movement is unblemished in fact there's a lot of really awful things like and this is probably one of the worst like uh, in uh, I believe in the sixties and seventies, the relationship between the AFL-CIO and the CIA, uh, with respect especially to Latin America, uh, is awful. Um, but we turn to the labor movement not for those reasons. Obviously, I mean we've explained elsewhere. But it's
0: Gloria, Gloria Steinem was a CIA agent. Yeah, that's Did right. You know that? yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Uh, yeah, one of my
5: And then and then she was saying that like Bernie is a misogynist or something. Yeah. Right? But, so
0: well there was a there was a, a leaked uh, there was like a leaked cia memo that basically said that you could use like woke wokeness to i mean i'm, I'm simplifying it but that you could use wokeness to beat back uh, the left it's great mm. uh, i'll find it uh, it's it's a good one to read mm.
5: um okay so last super chat i'll throw on screen i think so this is from michael tansy he had said a couple other things earlier that i think helped clarify what his question is um because he had said, "Michael, where are your messages?" Uh, sorry, folks, we're doing this. We are truly live. Um, but, anyways, I'll just go to your super chat. Um, get straight to the point. But you had said, Michael said, "Does embracing non-essentialism of race or discontinuing race distinctions in census data create a tight timeline for reparations policies?"
0: Oh well, yeah, I
1: understand. You don't understand.
5: Yeah, that's why I was trying to find. Uh, maybe there was a different way to word this. Um, but I think the, maybe the, the way to think about, maybe what, how I understand kind of what you're getting at is um, if, we, if we are, if our, poli- our politics, left politics and embrace and reflect a non-essentialist view on race, where we say, you know, that race is essentially a, a mistake of history, that mm-hmm. it's a mistaken categorization of people. It, it's not a real actual category. People who think that's a real actual category, most likely are racist. Uh, they because they believe in a racial worldview. Um, yeah. Uh, but so I think the the point to um, so your question of like, d- if you embrace that kind of world like an anti-essentialist worldview Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. does that change your maybe political approach or um you know the the urgency of something like reparations
0: oh yeah i think so yeah i mean i think that uh if you embrace anti-essentialism then you probably are skeptical of race specific policies right yeah 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 i think that's right
5: I think the, I mean, I think the way you think of it, I mean, because for us on the left, we start out with certain principles and morals and we say that every single human being, uh, is of equal value. And, uh, and so what we want to do is we want to create a world that reflects those principles. And so we try to implement policies that are in fact universalist. Um, so, you know, for instance, Medicare for all would mean that every single person, uh, has guaranteed healthcare as a human right, um, and that you don't pay at the point of of service. Um, that we all pull in, we all put in a little bit of money through taxation, and that we end up all getting out what we need from it. Now, it might be the case that because of our existing healthcare system and, and our political economy broadly, that if you just implement univer- or Medicare for All universal healthcare, there's still going to be some disparities, and that might be true. And so, what you do is you just add supplementary uh actions efforts money spending so that you in fact can have a universal program and that's the reason why you do it because you in fact do think every single person uh is worthy of full universal equal access and healthcare. uh it's not
1: i I want to add that i think that this is where walter ben michael's uh argument he, he he has this argument where he's like he calls it against history and he's like, we shouldn't pay attention to history. And he's obviously being like incendiary on purpose. And I know that a lot of people, you know, take contention with that formulation, but what he's getting at is like, if people are poor now, it doesn't matter whether it's because their ancestors were slaveholder or their ancestors were slaves, or it doesn't matter if, you know, they're poor now because their dad's union was busted in like, you know, the 1970s and like his pension was taken away. The point is that they're poor now. Uh, and, you know, regardless of race or like why they came to be poor, they deserve not to be poor. And that, I mean, like, I think that that is actually, like, not a bad way sometimes to look at how we should be thinking about universalist programs. And, you know, how we should be thinking about, um, I mean, because I think that, you know, when it comes to a topic, like, obviously, reparations, or these other race targeted programs, like the history is invoked a lot. And I'm not saying that's nothing. I mean, obviously, like that history is part of why some people are poor, and other people are not poor now. But I think what Walter is getting at is that, You know, I I think that his argument is very, you know, very non-essentialist. Like he's getting at, it doesn't matter why you ended up poor; you deserve not to be poor.
0: Yeah, no one should be poor, and that's it. Right. Yeah, and that you know, if you applied that standard, you would, you would, you know, there would be, there would be a race specificity to it in in effect, right, because of just disparate racial outcomes right now. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and then it's and it has the benefit of being more solidaristic in design and in Mm -hmm. messaging. And I think long
1: term popular, you know, I mean, we've seen from, I don't know, just like the history of various means tested programs in the US and, you know, compared to universal programs in the Nordic states, programs that are universal. Or here, like Social Security. No one talks
0: shit about Social Security outside of like the most psycho right wingers.
1: No, it's true. It's true.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is and this is uh, this could become a tangent. I'm going to stop it from becoming one. But basically, I mean, like the idea of like multiculturalism is like it it has always come from the right wing. Multiculturalism originates from the colonial states. It was a way to justify why these other parts of the population that we are colonizing Are different and that's okay we're going to keep them where they are like it the initial mission was we're going to civilize the savages and turn them all into you know europeans with regard to culture and principles and worldview whatever and they found that they actually cannot overturn uh local uh basically like social property relations the actual like the structures of these economies because there's a whole history of why that is but they basically say well you know what We're going to lock in place the global South. We're going to underdevelop the global South um, by colonizing them. And we're going to the ideology that comes out of that is, well, you know, why can't we just, we all are a little bit different. So like we're multicultural, you know, these people are different than us. These people think in loop-de-loops and are really into community and we're rational and enlightened and it's okay that we're different. We can live together. And the left in these countries, like the actual colonized populations and the left in Europe and elsewhere has always said, except for like the last like 20, 30 years, which have been the darkest, or not, you know, the last like 30, 40 years have been extremely dark. Um basically the left has always said, no, universal principles, universal politics, that mm-hmm. we believe that every single human being has equal worth and that, yes, of course there's cultural differences, but uh those like the the way that the colonized have been using Uh, The idea of cultural difference has literally been to to colonize like we we actually want a society where every single person has true political freedom and uh, in the means to have a good life. So that means massive redistribution of wealth and power. That's the left's position. Uh,
1: Enlightenment values, baby.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So learn from we have a tradition on this. Like there's a lot of people on the left all over the world most people who were marxists and socialists in the world were brown and black people in the global south uh, yeah. as we don't learn about do them as walter,
0: as walter ben michaels says forget history but also don't forget it you know learn from it uh yeah.
5: jen and i did some stuff on this like a week ago i think on uh, jacobin show on like how to how to appropriately take from the past and not just like you know you, you don't use it as a blueprint but you should actually like use it to cultivate a, re- a real world view so that you mm-hmm. can make political change now yeah.
0: All right. Well, on that note, it's 1201. All right.
1: Good to see you guys. Uh, thanks, thanks to everybody watching weekends on a beautiful Friday. And we'll see you next week. Anna will be back.
0: She'll Anna will be back. Jen, thank you so much for filling in. Always love to have you. And uh, everyone, have a nice week.
5: Thanks, everyone. Bump that zonky music. All right. Peace.
6: See you guys. <laughs>